Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. It has been 20 years since the United States invaded Iraq in a bid to locate and destroy weapons of mass destruction. The war led to thousands of Iraqi and American casualties and no weapons of mass destruction. The theory of Saddam Hussein's uh, WMD was promoted by Secretary of State Colin Powell and disseminated by a media that failed to successfully determine the quality of the intelligence on which the case for war was made. In the interim, in addition to the enormous Iraqi casualties, many American war veterans have suffered trauma, major injuries, and even suicide in consequence of their involvement in the war. Some even think the war set the stage for Donald Trump. In short, the consequences of the Iraq war have been momentous. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Louis Charbonneau, who is UN Director at Human Rights Watch. Prior to joining HRW, he was a journalist for more than two decades, most recently UN Bureau Chief for Reuters. His first posting with Reuters was in Vienna, where he focused on the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and other UN agencies from 2001 to 2005. He covered the UN weapons inspections in Iraq in 2002 and 2003, and the IAEA's attempts to resolve the nuclear crises in North Korea and Iran. Starting in early 2008, he was based at Reuters Bureau inside UN headquarters in New York, where he followed the Security Council, the General Assembly, and other UN bodies. He's a two-time winner of the Elizabeth Neufer, or Neufer uh, Memorial Award for his UN reporting in 2009 and 2011, as well as recipient of the UN Foundation Prize for his coverage of negotiations on an arms tra- trade treaty in 2013. In New York, he expanded his UN coverage to include human rights and other topics. He's a, he has a bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan and master's degrees from both Columbia University and the City College of New York, and he's now working on a PhD in political science here at the CUNY Graduate Center. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lou Charbonneau. Thanks for having me. Great to have you with us. So. Uh, you know, the uh, 20th anniversary of the beginning of the Iraq war has received, it seems to me, an enormous amount of attention uh, during the past week. And as a journalist who covered some of the central events leading up to the war, 
uh, I'd be curious to have you tell us, you know, how exactly you've experienced this coverage, this sort of retrospective view of what happened. Yeah, thanks. And it's good to be here to talk about it. This 20th anniversary seems to have come so quickly. I can barely remember the 10th anniversary. And it, in some ways, it feels like it was just a few months ago that it happened, but it does also feel distant. Um, as I was preparing to write uh, a guest column for Reuters, looking back at the time in which I was covering the UN weapons inspections, which was probably the most intense single period of reporting in my entire life. I was basically asked to drop everything I was doing. I, I used to focus at that time mostly on financial reporting, um, but I had begun covering the UN urgencies in Vienna, particularly after 9-11 because of the concern that terrorists could hijack a plane and slam it into a nuclear power plant um, uh, or that some militant group could get hold of highly radioactive material from a hospital or something and make a duty bomb. So it was something that we were um, looking at closely, but when Iraq announced that it would let the UN weapons inspectors back into the country, which was something I've been thinking about. I've been interviewing UN officials who kept saying they wanted to go back, finish the job, because they had had to leave in 1998. So there was this period between 1998 and 2002 where no UN inspectors were on the ground and nobody knew what was happening. Then it became increasingly clear that the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, was looking in the post 9-11 period at maybe going into Iraq. And in um, September of 2002, the Iraqis said, okay, you can come back. And that's when my life changed and I dropped everything. And so for the next uh, six months, I didn't turn off my cell phone. I was flying constantly. It didn't matter whether it was, uh, business or first class. I had to try and sit next to people like Hans Blitz, who was the head of uh, MOVIP, the, the, the UN um, Monitoring uh, Inspection Verification Commission that was charged with looking at uh, chemical, biological, and ballistic missile technology in Iraq. Um, also, Mohammed El Babadai, then the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA. So, as the road went, I had to go with them and I would ask them when we were going to deploy, when you're you looking at, what do you think you'll find. That's as the junior people, um, the, the, the inspectors who were training. I, I watched, um, uh, I went to some of the training sessions where Hans Brooks would give pep talks to the inspectors, some of whom looked to me like they were backpackers who'd been rounded up at a bus stop or train station. So I was a little skeptical of what the UN would be able to accomplish, but as the saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover. These people were all pretty impressive. I went and looked at the, um, the, the, the UN's um, special investigation laboratory outside Vienna in Cybersdorf, Austria, 
where they showed me how they would do environmental sampling and basically take like um uh sort of um uh dry wipes and um glorified q tips and and people who go and 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 basically swab uh, buildings and walls and things like that, took them back to that lab where we would analyze and process them for uh, trace, um, the traces of, of radioactive isotopes and other things that, that would indicate the presence of a revived nuclear weapons program. Uh, and with Unnovic, they were doing the same thing for biological, chemical, and other weapons things. So you know, the, the general view when you talk to these people is that they all thought there was something there. They all, when I would ask these people, when you deploy, what are you going to find? And they'll figure, well, yeah, there's got to be something. Saddam Hussein had had a nuclear weapons program that had been found and largely dismantled in the early 1990s. Um, in the 1980s, Israel had bombed uh, an, an Iraqi nuclear site that was, you know, we, were, we knew that they were producing, they working, doing research, aimed at developing a nuclear weapon. So it was pretty clear that this was a guy who was trying to do these things. We had used chemical weapons uh, against the Kurds. Um, uh, most famously in Halabjang, uh, we, we don't know to this day how many people were killed in the chemical weapon cocktail that was used. Literally. So, so this, they had these programs. They've been, they've been developing these kinds of weapons for a long time. So everyone just assumed that all of this intelligence that had started coming up after 9-11 was probably right, and if not, yeah, all of it, that, that there was most likely some reason to believe that there was some some truth to it. So in late November the, of 2002, the inspectors deployed. This came after a kind of long uh, haggling period in which the UN and the government of Iraq um, had to agree on terms of reference for the inspectors to come uh, and you know, what kind of access they, they would have. They were supposed to have fair access. The Iraqi government presented a, a declaration of their weapons programs and basically said that they, that there were no weapons of mass destruction programs, that all of it was defunct. Uh, so we found that in hand, the UN inspectors deployed at the very end of November, I believe it was November 27th, 2002. And um, so then, uh, yeah, I f followed them. The inspectors would come in and out. They had a kind of logistics base in, in Cyprus. So I would go and hang out in Cyprus and wait for them to come back. And, and they had a list of sites to visit that they'd gotten from the U.S. that yeah, had, there were hundreds of sites and it was very specific. And what was, what I found in talking to people was that there was absolutely nothing. Every single site that they visited 
turned up nothing. I mean, some of them weren't even what they were supposed to be. I, I wish I had all of my notes, but I just remember if there had been one thing that they would found, it would stick out in my mind, but, but they didn't. There were some holistic missile issues that were much talked about at the time in early 2003, but these were all kind of, you know, leftovers and, and then there, there wasn't anything to indicate a systematic rebuilding on the program. So in that month, after they deployed in late November, and then the end of two, 2002 going into 2003, that's when, in my discussions with the UN inspectors, there was a shift in tone. There were, the, at the end of 2002, beginning of 2003, there was a kind of crisis with North Korea because it announced that it would be withdrawing from the nuclear non-proliferation treaty and would be um, uh, restarting a mothballed nuclear facility in Yongbyon that had been um, closed down uh, during the Clinton, the Clinton administration with Burley working on nuclear weapons and there was the, the this deal called the Agreed Framework um, that uh, had been uh, negotiated uh, uh, in the early 90s. Um, so there was this huge crisis, and while that was going on, I saw Mohammed al-Bahadai at the UN, and I asked him how the situation was in Iraq and what they were finding. And he said, well, I'm glad you asked me that because was, we were not finding anything. And it's what about the smoking gun? that we've been willing to find. And he said, there's no smoking gun. We, we haven't found evidence. I mean, I'm um, paraphrasing what he said. I, I don't remember the exact word. At the no smoking gun, that is verbatim what he said. And so I published an interview, and it caused a bit of a ruckus at the time. The Americans were angry. They're like, why is the UN sort of, you know, determining the outcome of a process that is underway. Um, then uh, there was George W. Bush's State of the Union address in January of 2003, in which he talked about uh, the um, Iraqis attempting to get large quantities of uranium from Niger, presumably nuclear weapons program or a revived nuclear weapons program. After this was in the, the, the Bush State of the Union address, but the UN tried to get a third of the documentation to back up this allegation, which was a very serious allegation. And it, it, it was, if, you know, if there was anything that could have been close to a smoking gun, that might have been it. Uh, so they just kept asking the rest for the information. They, they didn't get it. Uh, and right. So, so let me just yeah. jump in and so, say, so there was, you know, lots of smoke. Whether there was fire was obviously less clear. And the U.S. government was unhappy about these findings on the part of the U.N. And we have to recall, this is all in the context of the post 9-11, you know, context. Uh, and there was, you know, a kind of search on for culprits and, you know, how are we going to find somebody who's going to, how are we going to stop this threat to the United States? And so, you know, Iraq became in a certain way an epicenter of that search. And yet, as you say, I mean, the UN found nothing, but 
the claims were made and uh, the war was uh, initiated, right? And uh, I mean, I'm also remembering that there were massive demonstrations in Europe and in the United States. I was actually living in Canada at the time, but you know, and there were demonstrations in Canada. But I mean, these are the big, biggest uh, demonstrations in Europe in the post-war period. So this was a time of considerable tension between the United States and its European allies. Um, so in any case, I mean, the point really that I want to make, I guess, is that there was a certain amount of prevarication in the course of making this case that, you know, Iraq had to be attacked and these uh, weapons of mass destruction found and destroyed. Um, and that, you know, set the United States on a path, A, of warfare and B, of, you know, prevarication about what it was doing uh, that has had ramifications, arguably, in, you know, subsequent, in the, in the subsequent 20 years. So I'm sort of curious, you know, how you would view that or how you wrote about that, that for Reuters. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really good point and question that you raised. Um, that, you know, the reason I mentioned the, the major uranium claim was because uh, un unlike some of the other several the aluminum tubes with a famous New York Times story where yeah the the Americans sent a team of people to the UN to explain how they were for nuclear centrifuges to enrich uranium for weapons and yeah the these you know, nuclear scientists took one look at the aluminum tubes and said these aren't any good for yeah nuclear uh, uranium enrichment. But yeah, they would be very good for what Iraq said they were going to be used for, which was for rocket launchers. Um, but uh, the Niger uranium claim was based on orange documents. Um, they had wrong letterhead of a, of of a government that no longer existed. The foreign minister's name was wrong. There were, there were all kinds of things that that the head of the Iran's Iraq action team, a French nuclear scientist just using Google figured out that it was all wrong within uh, a couple of hours. And, um, you know, yet the U.S. was peddling these things around uh, as as if there were proof of something very dramatic. So the the, the brazenness of the, the, the bogus claim that was in the State of the Union address, I think, was quite shocking for people. The U.N. went public with it. Um, the, the U.S. didn't care. Um, there was there were actually there was one U.S. official uh, at the U.S. mission in New York who's actually still quite um, senior in the Republican world, um, close to the Trump administration, who actually complained to a colleague of mine at Reuters that it was outrageous that Reuters had a French person uh, covering the U.N. weapons inspection because everyone knew. How biased the French were! The French were against the invasion of Iraq. And then my colleague said, that, "You know, Lou's not French. He's 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 from Detroit, Michigan, and you know, I don't even think he speaks French, which was true. My French is not very good at all, embarrassingly, given my name. Having to speak in German or or some regular languages at home, but my French is pretty pretty bad. So that was the atmosphere that we were." Living in, and then he 
sort of fast forward to now where bizarre conspiracy claims about just about anything are so routine. I mean, back then, we were all quite shocked to learn that the U.S. government could just so openly lie about things like that, that, that um, I mean, maybe a case could be made that that set the stage for people questioning not just the U.S. government, because governments are always questioned, always shouldn't be questioned, but also the mainstream media, because some media um, did not do proper due diligence when they were reporting, like the aluminum tubes or others who covered the uranium, because I was covering the U.N. weapons inspectors and was, you know, on, on some level, partially embedded with them. Um, I was there to hear what they said, and they had a very compelling case. I knew these people and trusted them. So I was reporting on what they said. Uh, and, well, the, the people who were writing some of the other things who were using Iraqi defectors or U.S. government officials were confirming what Iraqi defectors had said. They weren't calling the U.N. and asking for their opinion or assessment of the information that they were getting from the U.S. government. I mean, that's journalism 101, right? But in the rush that you, the rush to war, that the atmosphere that you described post 9-11, um, I think the people felt that, that you could do that. Um, there was a kind of confirmation bias uh, uh, for a lot of people. So it it just yeah I I think we're still dealing with it entirely. I I read I reread the New York Times Malcolm about some of their reporting. I mean they did some very good reporting. Um, certainly during the Iraq War, uh, but they definitely had some stories that 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 got a lot of traction. That you know um I for example was able to knock down very quickly when talking with people to follow up. For example, the aluminum tubes. Yeah, I made a few calls to people who had listened to the presentation of the of the U.S. team of experts who were sent to Vienna to make the case about these aluminum tubes. And they were, yeah, they said that it was not compelling at all. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so... Um, uh, yeah, there were there were definitely some lapses. I would like to think that we that that we all learned our lessons. I'm not sure about that, and and the seeds of doubt were put in everyone's mind. Um, uh, maybe it would have happened anyway with the with the explosion of the internet and social media. Those are definitely fertile ground for spreading misinformation. But um, I I do fear that probably the Iraq War. Played a role in 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 giving that um that the the kind of questioning everything, questioning the mainstream media, giving that legitimacy or more legitimacy than it would otherwise have had. Right. So it so you think it did have consequences for the way people went about doing journalism. Definitely. I mean, you know, I think that well, journalists, we've had cases, so high profile cases of journalists making things up and, and so we, we, we read about it 
um, good news organizations will hold those individuals accountable. They will remove the stories. They will issue corrections and apologies and all of that. And these things are always going to happen. You know, everyone makes mistakes. If you make a mistake in an article, you correct it. Um, you issue a formal correction. We all have to do that. Uh, whether we've learned about the the bias, um, and, you know, that I, 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 I don't know. I feel like yeah, sometimes it feels like me, the media landscape is increasingly polarized. Um, yeah, this idea of um, yeah objectivity and neutrality when reporting um, it's it's really important. I mean, it's difficult to yeah. We can talk for hours about what is objectivity when you're doing this this kind of work, but you know at 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 the bottom line of it is that if someone tells you something, you ask yourself, why are they telling me this? Right? Why is this U.S. government official telling me that this country has tried to you know do something that might yeah, enable them to develop weapons of mass destruction? So you want to ask yourself why they're telling you this. Um, you were looking to you know whether the information has any credibility, you try to figure out, are the people I'm looking to for confirmation, are they just, are they talking to the people who told me about this originally, and, and it's really just one source telling me everything? Yeah, you really need to look into these things and question everything. Um, does everyone do that all of the time? I, I, I don't know. It was certainly shocking for the media to see how much airplay some of the allegations got that the organization I was working for, Reuters, I mean, yeah, they just had me doing my job and, and the manner training um, uh, that, that I got about following up and questioning sources, never have more than one source. Always try to get someone on the record if you can. If you can't, discuss with your editors who these unnamed sources are. Um, try and figure out where they're coming from. Yeah, make uh, a reasonable decision. Get the lawyers involved if necessary. Uh, you know, that was how we did it, and you know, it was it was it was fine from my perspective. I mean, I feel pretty um, proud of the work I did at the time prior to the Iraq War. Uh, it, you know, has withstood the test of time. And I, I guess that there are other reporters out there who don't feel as good about what they did in the run-up to the U.S. invasion. Right. So, I mean, uh, how do you think this has affected, you know, the sort of practices of lying in government? I mean, it's always true that politicians lie about certain things. I mean, it just kind of goes without saying. But you know, we have seen in recent years uh, a president who's prepared to take that uh, level of lying, it seems, by the Washington Post's count, you know, to a, a whole new level. And I guess I wonder, you know, to what extent did the path to Trump, uh, you know, begin in the justifications of the Iraq war by the U.S. government? Well, certainly the idea that uh, the U.S., that the U.S. government lied, but we can't can't take them seriously with things that that President Trump said, like, um, uh, "Do you think we're a bunch of angels or 
However, he, he said it when he was asked why he was defending Vladimir Putin. And yeah, he, he basically took the position that, you know, the U S government, uh, has, um, a lot of skeletons in its closet. It's done a lot of bad things, which of course is true. Like we, we all know that, but, but this, this idea that, that somehow, you know, everything is in, in doubt and you just dismiss everything. I mean, giving sort of legitimacy to, um, conspiracy theories, um, Certainly, I think it, it, it got um, a few legs up uh, thanks to Donald Trump. There were a lot of things that were said during that time. Yeah, if we think about COVID and the kind of strange um, things that came out of the White House at that time that people should use bleach. And um, uh, yeah, but at the same time, we're still discussing things like, which we talk about COVID, the origin of the pandemic and after initially being dismissed because President Trump was um, promoting it, but the loud leak theory has kind of gotten uh, a new lease on life and people are taking it more seriously than they did before. I mean, I am not, um, uh, I'm not a scientist in, in that world, uh, so I can't speak with any authority about it. I know what I read and, and I, I do know that, that it's no longer being dismissed on both sides of the aisle in, in Congress. So, uh, what's a conspiracy theory today, you know, could get some traction later on, but, you know, point is, is that, well, liars, I guess we're, we're, I haven't done an empirical study of it, but it does seem like there's more of them. And, and I'll give another example, not um, President Trump, who is famous for throwing out all of the lies. One of the things when we talk about the Iraq war, and now that we have the 20th anniversary, um, in my entitled reporting career covering the United Nations, um, and particularly over the last sort of uh, 12 years, I would say, the Russians have been very, very keen on bringing up the lies in Iraq. Anytime the U.S. moving out about Russia or China or some other country, they'd say, why should we believe you? Remember what you said about Iraq. The Russians still do that to this day. Um, the Russian ambassador at the United Nations, if there's a meeting of the U.N. Security Council on Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, based on yeah, the Flynn's list of pretexts that they were supposedly going to go and, and quote-unquote denazify Ukraine, um, one of the things that they say when they get criticized is, how dare you in the United States criticize us? You Look what you did in Iraq. You said that we invaded sovereign territory. Uh, well, that's what you did in 2003 with Iraq, I mean, lied about the weapons of mass destruction. Of course, there's a huge problem there, right? But the, but the U.S., we know the U.S. invaded Iraq on the basis of a false pretext and lies about weapons of mass destruction. That doesn't make it right 
for Russia on February 24th, 2022, to also then, yeah, lie about um, uh, supposed Nazis running um, wired in Ukraine, and then to go and invade and supposedly serve the country and subject them to, uh, yeah, relentless bombing raids, bombing attacks against civilians, and things that the United States um, and Britain did in Iraq. Um, yeah, the United States and Britain used thousands of cluster munitions. Um, yeah, Russia has done that in Ukraine too. But, but I, I don't want to talk like they're equivalent, but certainly the United States continues to have to defend the indefensible uh, regarding what it did in 2003 in Iraq. And it's, it's, right. a, it's a stain on the, on, on the sort of U.S. legacy that you know, I don't think they're ever going to get rid of. The Russians are always going to question everything the U.S. says, every allegation, and say, remember Iraq. And, right. you know. Two, two wrongs don't make a right, but the first one opens the door to you two when they commit the second one. Exactly. That's that. That's where we're at, and I guess we'll always be there. Yeah. Well, this was a terrific uh, conversation and and sort of review of uh, the period since the Iraq War started in two thousand three and and the run up to it in two thousand two. Uh, but that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Louis Charbonneau of Human Rights Watch and the CUNY Graduate Center for sharing his insights on the occasion of the twentieth anniversary of the start of the Iraq War. Uh, remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his uh, technical assistance and to thank Duncan McKay for sharing this song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.